Easter, of course, is a glorious day. Resurrection Sunday. Christ is risen from the dead. And we think back to that first morning when the grave was empty. Christ was alive. And that was the moment when victory is just completely secured. It's the moment where it is declared without reservation that God is triumphant, that he is at work in this world, that death is not the end, that sins can be forgiven, that the darkness of night will be replaced with the light of morning, that eternal life is real, that there is hope beyond the grave, that Christ is Lord. That's what Easter declares to us. We have to make sure we get our definitions right. When we talk about the resurrection of Christ, we have to make sure that we understand that Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, really died. That's Good Friday. He didn't just pretend to die. He really died. His heart stopped beating. He gave up his spirit Life departed from him. He was so dead that he was buried, placed in a tomb. His body was lifeless. The resurrection means that this same Jesus, the same one who died, came to life again. That he physically rose. He physically regained life. That God gave him life again his body was not stolen. It was not a hoax by his disciples. It was not just that he appeared to die. It was not just that he appeared in a non-physical body on that Sunday. That he really died and that he really came to life again is what we celebrate today. He was so alive that you could touch him. He was so alive that he could eat fish. That's what we're talking about. The importance of resurrection to Christianity is so crucial that without the resurrection, you have no Christianity. This is so important because Jesus, before he died, claimed that he would both die and rise again. And Jesus is the founder of Christianity, and if the founder cannot fulfill the basic claim of the whole faith, then there is no faith. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, as he's talking to his disciples, he said that he will be raised on the third day. He made that claim. It was unmistakable. He said it again and again. Read the Gospels for yourself and see. Again and again, he makes this claim. One author notes, here is a teacher of religion, and he calmly professes to stake his entire claims upon his ability, after having been done to death, to rise again from the grave. We may safely assume that there never was, before or since, such a proposal made. End quote. It's so important that without this event, there is no Christianity. 1 Corinthians 15, 
14 through 19, the Apostle Paul makes that same statement. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. He goes on and says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ... We have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. The Apostle Paul can't imagine Christianity without the resurrection. Neither should we. Another author writes, Christianity does not hold the resurrection to be one among many tenets of belief. Without faith in the resurrection, there would be no Christianity at all. The Christian church would never have begun The Jesus movement would have fizzled out like a damp squib with his execution. Christianity stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection. Once disprove it, and you have disposed of Christianity. End quote. The truthfulness of the resurrection is shown in the very existence of Christianity. Not that the existence of some religion proves that it is true, but because Christianity is found on the Christ, a risen Christ, the claim is that it would not have come to exist if Christ had not really raised from the dead. Another author says, without the belief in the resurrection, the Christian faith could not have come into being. The disciples would have remained crushed and defeated men, Even had they continued to remember Jesus as their beloved teacher, his crucifixion would have forever silenced any hopes of his being the Messiah. The cross would have remained the sad and shameful end of his career. The origin of Christianity therefore hinges on the belief of the early disciples that God had raised Jesus from the dead. End quote. That's not my intention to provide a defense of the resurrection in a systematic way. I only bring these things up to show that the resurrection is important on a large scale. And also, to recommend to any who are wondering about the truthfulness of the resurrection, that there is a lot of material out there to read. Begin first with the eyewitness accounts contained in the Bible itself that claim to have seen the risen Christ There are other works that are out there that are written that you can dig into to investigate the claims of the resurrection. But I would suggest to you that if you can come to a conviction about the truthfulness of the resurrection, that will lead you to a truthfulness about every claim Christ made. So I encourage you to investigate that if you have not taken the time to do so. The resurrection is fundamental to our faith. We have no faith without it. And while you can take this big-picture view of the resurrection, and that's important to do, the approach I'd like to take for the rest of our time would be to consider the resurrection in a much more personal way. Yeah, it's a grand doctrine, something worth studying the scholarly papers written about it, something worth digging into Scripture about to see all the facts of the case, but we must not miss the personal nature of the resurrection. 
And that's what comes through with crystal clarity in John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. The personal nature of the resurrection. And when I say that the resurrection is personal, I mean that it is more than just a philosophy or an abstract fact. I mean, first of all, that it is a person who rose from the grave. And that makes it personal. It wasn't a theory that came back to life, not a philosophy, not a teaching, but a person. And so the resurrection is by definition personal. But it's personal in another sense, in that the one who was risen again made the object of his ministry after his resurrection about people. And so it is therefore personal. And so I'd like to look at this very special portion of Scripture. It is the very first appearance of the risen Christ to a human being. John chapter 20, verse 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help to understand this passage. Father, we ask that you would help us now as we contemplate this account of Christ appearing to Mary. Help us to understand it. Help us to understand it in more than a theoretical way or an intellectual way. Pray that with our very hearts we would grasp these truths. They would actually grasp us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. One of the difficult disciplines in Bible study is to try to harmonize the different accounts of the life of Jesus. Not that it's impossible, it's very possible. It just takes some time to think through. If you've read the other accounts of the resurrection of Jesus in Matthew and Mark and Luke, there are details there that aren't contained here, and it might cause you to think, how do these all fit together? 
And I'm not going to go through harmonizing them for you. You can take some time to investigate that for yourself. But I just want to point out that this text has a good illustration for us about why this is a difficult task. It's difficult because the resurrection accounts do not include every detail that we might like to know. With our Western modern mindset, we might think of history in a little bit different way than the authors of Scripture did, not that they weren't factual or historical, but perhaps didn't have the same Western mindset that we have. In fact, they definitely didn't. And so they don't include details that weren't important to their purposes. And so in our text, we see here that Mary is at the tomb for a second time that morning. We read the text at the beginning of our service, that it was the first day of the week, and Mary had gone to the tomb. Other accounts of the resurrection tell us that she went there with some other women. It was still dark, and when they get there, the tomb is found to have the stone rolled away from it. She runs back to tell the disciples, Peter and John. And she says there, we do not know where they have laid him. She notices the tomb is empty and concludes that the body's been taken. She implies there that there are other ladies that were present, but John makes no mention of them. he's He's only focusing on Mary. But you read the other accounts of the Gospels, and there are other women included. It shows a great harmony between the Gospels. And then Peter and John run to the tomb, and the focus of John is on those disciples John is faster. He gets there first. Peter has the guts to go in. And then John looks in himself. And then they go back to their homes. And then strikingly, verse 11 says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And if you're paying attention, you're wondering, well, how did she get there? Last we saw her, she had just gone and told Peter and John. But where'd she come from? Again, the author of Scripture leaves out some details that we might like to know, but it doesn't take much thinking to realize she didn't get there by a scooter or a bus or a van. She didn't just suddenly appear there. She walked or ran there. So there's a great harmony to these events. But the focus is clearly on Mary. There she is at the tomb. For the second time that morning, at the empty tomb, and she's already told the disciples that they have taken the Lord out of the tomb in verse 2, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so, here she is again, outside the tomb, this time weeping. And now we have this amazingly tender moment where the first appearance of Christ to a human being occurs. And it's to this woman, Mary. This should help us to understand that the resurrection is personal. This passage makes us slow down and see the resurrection of Christ through the eyes of Mary Magdalene. She's the very first person in the world see the risen Christ. The question that should rise up, why Mary? Why does she get that privilege? 
Why did Mary get to be that person that gets to strut around now and say, you know what? I was the first one. Why does she get that? How come she gets that privilege? I mean, you see Mary in heaven, it's probably the first thing that she's going to tell you. Why her? Was she better? Was she more righteous? Did she deserve it more? Why Mary? Mary Magdalene has gained unfairly a massive reputation in Christianity. Some of it is so wrong that they claim that she was the wife of Jesus. Most of it has just been adapted or adopted into our kind of Christian culture, and we just assume Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Scripture doesn't have that much to say about Mary. It simply tells us where she was from, Magdala, which is a city on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. It tells us in Luke chapter 8 that seven spirits had been driven from her, demons. It tells us that she followed Jesus in his ministry in Galilee and was part of the entourage of women that helped provide for Jesus and the disciples out of their means. That's about it. It's pretty much all we know about her. There's nothing that it tells us in Scripture that she was a prostitute. Some people equate her with the sinful woman of Luke 7. Luke 7 doesn't even say that that woman was a prostitute. It just says she was a sinful woman. It's a conclusion we draw that she was of sexual immorality. But Luke 7 is not Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene gets introduced in Luke 8 in quite a distinct way from who the woman was in Luke 7. And so what do we know about this woman? The answer is... Not much. Not much at all. We know that she was there when Christ was crucified. She saw where he was buried, and now she's back at the tomb. But we know next to nothing of her personality. We know that she had been filled with seven demons by the ministry of Jesus. Those are gone from her. She's a follower of Jesus. She helped support his ministry we know nothing about her personality, about her righteousness. Why Mary? She's so otherwise obscure. And maybe that's part of the point. You can think of so many others that maybe we would have selected to be the first person to have that privilege. We can put people on pedestals. Oh, that's the super Christian right there. Oh, that one deserves more than anybody else. That one's more righteous. That one has it all together. That one should have the privilege. Or we think that way of ourselves. But here you've got this obscure woman, Mary Magdalene, getting the privilege of seeing the risen Christ for the first time. Why her? I think that's precisely the point. And I think that's precisely what Mary would say. Why me? So many others. There's the sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha. There's Peter, James, and John, the inner three. James would be martyred for Christ. 
We have Stephen, the first martyr. There's Zacchaeus, Bartimaeus, the man born blind. He gets an old chapter to himself in the Gospel of John. We have the woman at the well. We have the man who had legion of demons driven from him. We have Jairus. We had the woman who was healed from the flow of blood. All of them, more attention given than Mary Magdalene. And she gets the privilege. I think it's a display of the sheer grace of God. It's not based on merit. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus appears first to a woman. This is almost scandalous. That's why some people conclude that Jesus and Mary must have had some sort of relationship. They conclude wrongly so, but Jesus has never been one to play by human norms. And so he appears to a woman first, and it appears that he does this in order to show that in Christ, as we learn in Colossians, there is neither male nor female. That has nothing to do with the insane transgenderism of today. But it has to mean that before Christ, male and female, man or woman, received the same spiritual benefits and blessings of forgiveness of sins, a relationship with God through Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and eternal life. You've probably heard before that with Jesus appearing to a woman first, He's appearing to someone that in the, that day and age would be unfit to give official testimony in a court of law. According to the Mishnah, which is rabbinic literature from around 200 AD and kind of encapsulates Jewish teaching about the law, the Mishnah Rosh Hashanah says that the following are unfit to give testimony as they are considered thieves and robbers. One who plays with dice, it's a gambler. Those who lend money with interest. Those who race pigeons and place wagers on the outcome. Merchants who deal in produce of the sabbatical year, which may be eaten, but may not be an object of commerce. And slaves. This is the principle, it says. Any testimony for which a woman is unfit, these two are unfit. Ouch. And yet Jesus appears to this woman, Mary Magdalene, just chopping down the man-made traditions. We know that Mary was reliable enough to compel Peter and John to head over to the tomb. Why does Jesus appear to Mary? I think because she was a nobody, because she was a woman. Another answer, perhaps, to why Mary is, it definitely wasn't random. The Lord could have chosen any woman to fulfill that privilege of being the first to see. But as you read through this text, there is such a tenderness between Jesus and this woman, that it shows Jesus by his own choice, intentionally, in a thought-out decision, in a non-random way, 
chooses to appear to Mary. What wonderful kindness. What wonderful grace. This is not a chance encounter. It's not just that Jesus happened to be taking a stroll in his new resurrection body, thinking, what a great morning this is. I'll just walk by the tomb I used to be in. Oh, look, there's Mary. This is not random. Not a chance event. Perhaps we ought to also observe that it was Mary because she went back to the tomb. And as she's at the tomb, she's weeping. We can easily imagine why. She would follow Jesus, clearly loved him as a teacher, had been radically changed by his ministry. Now he's dead. That alone is enough to provoke enough sorrow to bring about this weeping from Mary. This is not a quiet weeping. It's the same kind of weeping that you see at the tomb of Lazarus as there are professional mourners there that are crying out with lamentation for the loss of a loved one. This is not just a hidden internal weeping. Mary was probably making a large amount of noise. She was woefully sad. She had horrible sorrow. She is struck by the fact that The body of her Lord, her master, her teacher is no longer in the tomb. She is overcome with emotion. There again, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She's weeping at the tomb. She stoops to look in. And her angst is over the sorrow of the loss the angst and grief over the body of her Lord missing. She even says in the midst of her grief to Jesus, if you know where the body is, I'll take him. How's she going to do that? We don't know. But grief doesn't always speak out of rationality. She's so overcome. As she stoops to look into the tomb, there are two angels sitting there in white. And if you think that you would recognize angels when you see them, you'd probably be right. But Mary doesn't seem to acknowledge that these are angels. She's just so consumed and so focused on the missing body of her Lord that when they ask her, woman, why are you weeping? She just matter-of-factly tells them, probably through the tears, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She doesn't ask, what are you doing here? She's so focused on Jesus. But we have to note, amidst all of this grief and this weeping, she is fully convinced that Jesus is dead that his body is missing. But her grief and her angst have no root in reality. 
And so the question that the angels ask, why are you weeping? It's a legitimate question. Mary doesn't know the answer to it other than what she's feeling or why they're asking it really. But she believes Jesus is dead, his body's been stolen, and she would be right to weep if those things were true. As a matter of fact, if those things were true, all of us at this moment ought to weep and wail and despair. If the body really was just taken somewhere, if Jesus really was dead, then you ought to despair of life itself. Have you ever felt for a moment in your heart, what if the resurrection wasn't true? Have you felt that? If you feel that for a moment, all hope should immediately drain completely from your body. Your heart should be empty. There should be no joy. Oh, you might think, oh wait, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he's not Lord, there is no king over this universe, I can just do what I want. I'm the king of my own life. But do you know how quickly that leads to futility? Do you know how unsatisfying it is just to live for yourself? Have you tasted of what it means to live for the world, to live for yourself? It is so empty. It brings no lasting joy. And you still have to reckon with the fact that death is coming. One day you're going to have to cross through that veil of death. And if Christ is not raised from the dead, then nobody is raised from the dead. If he couldn't live again, nobody could. Because nobody was more righteous than he. And so if this is true, that Jesus is dead and his body is nowhere to be found, we're of all men most to be pitied. There's no hope. Death still looms and purpose is elusive. Mary, when we see what she says from the perspective that the resurrection is true, that it has really occurred, her statements border on the insane. Not that she is insane. We understand why she says this, but look again at what she says in response to the angels. In verse 13, she says, They have taken away my Lord. She's so certain of that fact, but who's the they? It's like that elusive them out there that's always doing the wrong things. They took my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. She's so certain. And then when she speaks to Jesus, she turns around after speaking to the angels, perhaps sensing there's somebody there behind her, and she turns around and she sees Jesus, but she thinks he's the gardener. The tomb is in a garden, and so there likely would have been a gardener, and she just concludes, based on her suppositions, that he's a gardener. Jesus asks her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Replay that line, but now knowing the truth and who she's speaking to. Listen to the way it sounds based on the truth. 
Jesus, if you have carried yourself away, tell me where you have laid yourself and I will take you away. That's effectively what she's saying to him. All of her grief is rooted in unreality. It's nonsense. I wonder if after Mary comes to realize what she said to Jesus, she can't help but start laughing after the fact. But she's still so focused that she's looking at angels or she's looking at Jesus and she doesn't get it. What's it going to take? What's it going to take to wake her up? A bucket of cold water? A trip to the psych ward? A thunderclap from heaven and blazing lights? What's it going to take to get her to realize what has happened? One word. Spoken by one person. And that word is Mary. That's when she gets it. Few things are more personal than hearing your name spoken. You could hear your name spoken at a doctor's office when a nurse who has no idea who you are calls you, Mr. Craig. But there's nothing more personal than when somebody who knows you speaks your name. I have a commentary that is uh, basically going through all of the fine details of the Greek text of the New Testament. It has words in there that no one should ever have to read about. Words like aorists and nominatives and participles and person, gender, number, and all that stuff. And it gets into all this technical garb about the Greek behind the New Testament. And in the midst of that detailed analysis of John chapter 20, when it comes to John 20, verse 16, it's as if the author just has to set that aside for a moment because he himself is so overcome with this. And the author uses none of that technical language, and he writes, Jesus proceeds to call one of his sheep by name. John chapter 10, verse 3, the chapter that describes Jesus as the good shepherd. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. That's what Jesus does. He speaks to this woman just consumed with sorrow and grief and he speaks her name and that wakes her up. One word. But it's a word that says so much. It's a word that declares he's alive for dead men can't speak. It's a word that says he knows her. It's a word that says she knows him for that is what makes her recognize him. He knows her, and she knows her shepherd's voice. And it says that he remembers 
He's not transcended to some spiritual realm where he is now separated from all that he once knew and had participation with. It shows that there's a continuity from his life before and his life now. He knows his own still. He hasn't forgotten about them. He hasn't become so holy that he's forgotten those that he's purchased at the cross. He knows them, and he knows them by name. So personal. Mary responds, Rabboni, which means teacher. It's a term used of great respect. It's often used in the writings of the time to refer to God himself. Here just John translates it simply as teacher. She recognizes who he is, what, she's meant, what he's meant to her. And now Jesus says this fairly enigmatic statement in verse 17 that almost takes the personal nature of it away when he says, do not cling to me. And he explains why. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. We learn in Matthew 28 that when the women see Jesus, they fall down at his feet. Most likely Mary has done that and she's wrapped her arms around his feet as a sign of affection for him. And Jesus says, do not cling to me. I don't think it's a strong rebuke, but he does tell her to stop doing what she is doing. The reason is explained by the fact that he has not ascended to the Father yet. If you read in Gospel of Luke and Acts, Jesus in about 40 days is going to be lifted up and go to heaven and he's there now until he returns. And Jesus is saying that he hasn't done that yet. And so the meaning seems to be that the time isn't quite yet. There's still time to be around him. He's not yet gone to the Father, but the time is coming. The time is coming, he says, because he charges Mary to go to his brothers. It's referring to his disciples. And say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Why is this the message that Jesus charges Mary to bring to his disciples? Notice, by the way, that he calls his disciples my brothers. That's personal. But here, he wants them to mostly know at this point that he was going back to his father. He says, my father, your father, my God, your God. Some people take this too far and think that this shows that Jesus is not divine, but that's certainly not the case. Jesus is the eternal son of God who took on flesh and lived a truly human life. And as a man, he has the father as his God. As the eternal Son of God, He's equal, completely and totally. And you see that there is both a a commonality but a distinction. My Father and your Father. He doesn't lump it together and say, our Father. Jesus is the Son of God by right. We have God as our Father by adoption and grace. My Father and your Father, my God and your God. Why is he mentioning this about his ascension into heaven? Why is this so important for them to know in light of the resurrection? It would be worth your while for just a 
very brief moment to look at a couple of verses in the Gospel of John. 1 John chapter 13, verse 1. This is Jesus about to wash his disciples' feet. And it says that when he knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Then John 13, verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and proceeds to wash his disciples' feet. See, Jesus understands it's his time not just to go to the cross, but also his time is coming where he's going to go into heaven at his Father's right hand. John 14, verse 2, describes what Jesus viewing himself at the cross is doing. In John 14, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. See, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the fact that he is going to his Father And he's going there in order to prepare a place for his disciples. In order that they might be where he is. And so when Jesus tells his disciples through Mary, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God, it is a very clear message to them that the way is prepared, that he has access to the Father, and because he has access to the Father, anyone who is in him will also go to be where he is. In John chapter 17, verse 24, Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer. John 17, verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is the good news that Jesus is proclaiming to his disciples, that because he is going to his Father, we likewise will get to go to be with our Father. This whole resurrection is so personal. It is so good. Jesus' death and resurrection Bring us to the Father. He wants us to know this, that if He gets to be with His Father, then all those who are with Him or in Him will one day get to be with Him, with His Father. That's the personal offer. And so as you think about the resurrection and the significance for you, yes, it is the pillar and support, really, of our whole faith. But it's really an offer to anyone who trusts in Christ to have your sins forgiven, and you have the hope that one day you will be brought to be with Jesus. And where is Jesus? With his Father, who also happens to be your Father. What a wonderful, wonderful gift. Yeah, Mary got the first privilege. None of us are going to get that one. 
but by his grace, we get something we could never earn and certainly never deserve. We get access to the Father through the victory Christ accomplished at the cross and in his resurrection. Do you know this resurrection? Do you know the goodness of this for you? Do you know what this means for you personally, who have a name? Do you one day hope to hear Jesus say your name? If you hear him say your name, would you recognize his voice? Would that be the sweetest word that could ever be spoken to you? I can't think of anything sweeter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful news of the resurrection of Christ. We could spend all of our life trying to think of better news than this, and I don't think that we could come up with anything even close. But Father, we praise your name for the goodness of our Savior, and what he has accomplished for us. Thank you that in his resurrected state, he looked on the lowly, he looked on his disciples, and we thank you that he looks on us. Oh, we worship you, Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom you have brought forth from the dead. You've conquered death and you've given us eternal life, those who believe in you. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.